An Instagram post gets an unexpected boost. A TikTok catches in the algorithm. Sometimes that's all it takes to launch someone into internet fame. But then what? This Blew Up is a new podcast documentary that reveals how social media stardom is made. It's a different kind of fame that's not always as glamorous as it looks. From Spotify and the Ringer Podcast Network, I'm Alyssa Bereznak. You can listen to This Blew Up on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. So, this is the top team you've been talking about. The road clones on the run from the Empire, huh? How juicy. You told her. Don't get twitchy. She's a friend. She's the most trustworthy pirate I know. Is it supposed to be comforting? Aren't clones supposed to look alike? So much for quality control. This one's too big. This one's too small. This one's got a face tattoo. <laughs> They're real subtle. And welcome into the Ringerverse here on the Ringer Podcast Network. I'm Mallory Rubin, and it is my absolute pleasure to invite you not only back to Sid's parlor on Ord Mantel, but also to join us on the Ringer's Nexus podcast feed for all things fandom. My beloved House of our working title co-host, Joanna Robinson, is a bit under the weather today, but uh Fear not, cherished listeners and pals. Joe will be back with us next week here on the House of R. If you are craving some first week of January, Joe, and how could you not? Let's be honest, how could you not be? There is a great pod waiting for you over on Trial by Content where Joe, Neil, and Dave place their bets for what the biggest movie of 2023 will be. So go check that out, and then you can find more Joe here next week. It's a bad batch day here. The House of R. And that means the spirit of squads is with us. And so it just so happens that we had a special guest already planning on putting on the podcast clone armor to chat with us today. So joining me now, after he's finished telling me that if he's incorrect, we will instantly be sucked out and perish, but he is seldom wrong. It's Ben Lindbergh. Hello, Mel. Happy New Year. What a way to start the year with some Star Wars and some Bad Batch. And sadly, without Joe, a late scratch. She's going to be the crosshair of this episode. <laughs> She'll be back at some point, but good to be with you. Uh, crosshair, uh, absolute favorite of mine, as you know. So it I all am tracks. well aware, yes. <laughs> <laughs> we are here today to discuss, Benjamin, the two-part premiere of season two of The Bad Batch. And we're also in the later part of the pod today going to do a little bit of looking ahead, looking ahead to the rest of the year in Star Wars TV, Star Wars stories, going through some of the most exciting things that await. Before we join Omega and Hunter and Echo and Tech and Wrecker for another mission with Clone Force 99, though, a few quick programming reminders, as always. The Midnight Boys. Pew, pew, pew have their first pod of 2023 waiting for you on the feed already, including their midnight predictions for the year to come. Check that out if you haven't yet. They will, of course, be back with you next Wednesday. And then Joe and I will be back with you next Friday, along with a couple 
Friends of the Pod mm. for a 2023 hype draft. Will Ben Lindbergh be back on the feed <laughs> as soon as next Friday? Who can say? We'll find out. Get hyped. Then, if folks are wondering, how can I follow all of that? How can I stay tuned for future updates on Ringerverse programming? What would you recommend? There are so many ways. I would subscribe to the feed, of course, <laughs> on Spotify. That's a great way to do it. Could great find, to start. Find yeah. us on, on various social media platforms. Appreciate yeah. the fine work of, of Jomi. That's right. That's right. You can also send us your emails if you'd like. We are still active and awaiting your scrolls, awaiting your comm link <laughs> <laughs> updates at hobbitsanddragons at gmail.com. That is hobbitsanddragons at gmail.com. And of course, bear in mind our friendly neighborhood spoiler warning today. As always, we will be breaking down the plot details of the two-episode Bad Batch premiere, but we're also going to be talking about the Bad Batch season one. We're going to be talking about Clone Wars, Rebels. Honestly, we're going to be talking about all of Star Wars. It's a wide canon, and it's all on the table today. All right. Climb into the Marauder. It's time to pod. We are going to start with the Bad Batch Season 2 premiere. Ben, before we dive into Spoils of War and Ruins of War, the first two episodes of this season, let's do a little quick table setting to establish our relationship with this series and with the larger Star Wars animated verse. We had the pleasure of chatting about the beginning and end of Bad Batch Season 1 together last year, but for anyone who may be didn't hear those pods or is curious about which member of Clone Force 99 is your personal favorite. What's your feeling on the Bad Batch? It's It wasn't even last year now. It was two years ago. Now it's 2023. We have to adjust our, our mental calendars. But our relationship I, I, I can't do it. What is yeah. time? <laughs> <laughs> My relationship with the, the Star Wars animated universe is a very warm one, as it is for you. It it means a lot to me. It means a lot to you too. And we go way back because there was a decade between Revenge of the Sith and The Force Awakens, which wasn't as long as the gap between the original trilogy and the prequels, but it still felt pretty long at the time. And of course, there were video games and books and comics, but for scripted on-screen Star Wars, the animated universe, the Filoni-verse, was what we had. And I've made this point before, but I think it bears repeating. There's a lot of this stuff. It would take more than twice as long to watch all of the Clone Wars as it would to watch all 11 live-action movies in a marathon. And in terms of total screen time, the Clone Wars and Rebels combined outweigh everything else put together, all the movies, all the other TV shows. So... For a lot of people, the animated stuff isn't just a supplement to live-action Star Wars. It's the centerpiece, or it's one of the more meaningful corners of the canon. So just the, the sheer number of hours over an extended stretch of years created a really strong connection with a lot of those characters. And, and Rebels, which is my favorite of the animated series and one of my favorite Star Wars projects, period, was also significant in that it was the first on-screen release of the Disney era. And it sort of set the tone and, and offered some reassurance that there were still great things ahead for the franchise. So on the whole, I love it. It's meant a lot to me. We'll talk about how it's playing an increasingly prominent role in the, the Star Wars on TV universe. But 
it means a ton to to both of us, and and I like it enough to have sat through both seasons of Star Wars Resistance in the hope that I would eventually love that too at some point, which didn't really happen. But that's just a measure of my devotion. You didn't mention that uh, you think Tech is an absolute heartthrob, but fear not, <laughs> you'll have another opportunity because that's going to come up when we, when we get when we get into what I'm unfolded not the only one. Premiere. It turns out his his magnetism is just a, a raw animal magnetism that he exudes. <laughs> Season two premiere for you, Ben Lindbergh. <laughs> oh boy. I feel the same way, Ben, as you know. I absolutely love, cherish, and adore the animated Star Wars verse. Clone Wars is among my my favorite things, and Rebels is truly among my favorite Star Wars stories. I I really love revisiting both of those shows and returning to them as often as possible. I find whether it's getting to fall into a new world and a new family and a new cast of characters as we did in Rebels or really enhancing our understanding of the relationship and dynamic between central existing live action main movie characters like Anakin and Obi-Wan or seeing how those characters then introduce with the new character like Ahsoka, the animated verse just allows so much room for character development and the exploration of not only fun plot developments and a larger exploration of the wide and sprawling galaxy, which is always something we talk about. You know, the galaxy is so big. Let us see more places in it. Let us see more planets. Let us see more cultures, which we get to do so often in these shows, but also understanding the arcs. If there are moments in the movies, and again, I love the Star Wars movies. So do you. If there are moments in the movies that feel rushed or hurried, one of the things that the animated shows unlock for us is so much of that time in between. Clone Wars, obviously the the chief example of that. And something like Rebels unlocking like a, the thing you didn't see just out of screen of this seismic central event in the canon. So it widens and enhances in a way that I really love. I'm actually been uh, doing a little bit of a Rebels rewatch. Let me tell you something. I'm contemplating that myself. Yeah. (laughs) A blast. Couldn't recommend it. (laughs) Couldn't recommend it more. And... You know, heading into Bad Batch season one, I was really excited for the the show for all of those reasons. Love the Filoniverse, love the animated stories. I've always been really interested in the idea, that central idea of showing us the individuality of the clones, which is obviously very central to the Clone Wars, but is definitional to the idea of the Bad Batch, given the distinction of these enhanced traits that make the members of Clone Force 99 unique. I wasn't like the, the four episode arc that centers on the Bad Batch and Echo joining the Bad Batch that opened season seven of the Clone Wars was not like my favorite arc of the Clone Wars ever. So I was like, okay, I'm interested to see what Bad Batch is, but you know, we'll find out together how interesting this is. I loved season one. I mean, we both really enjoyed it. I, adored not only meeting new characters like Omega and getting to better know the members of the Bad Batch who had already been in the story, but think it's one of the best examples yet. And this will be, I think, a bit of a a through line of our chat today as we look ahead to the rest of season two. One of the best examples in Star Wars of canon connections that worked beautifully and felt additive 
And like they enhanced something about our understanding of the world and weren't there just because. And I think a lot of the reason for that is because so many of the characters we saw in season one, whether it was Caleb, Young Kanan, or Cad Bane, you know, these characters who are near and dear to Dave Filoni, it, Hera, I mean, it just clicked and was so wonderful when we got to see those characters. So I'm really looking forward in season two to more of that and seeing how other familiar faces across Star Wars can rejoin the story and enhance something about the timeline that we didn't know before. Yeah, it really just it allows these storytellers to flesh out little corners of the universe and aspects of the story that are difficult to find time for in live action. I think the Clone Wars really rehabilitated some aspects of the prequels and, and retroactively made us care more about some aspects of them. And some of the things that people would say when we were watching Andor and people would say, oh, we've never mm -hmm. seen this before right. in Star Wars. In some like, cases, Rebels, yeah, have. right, exactly. In <laughs> yeah. some cases, it was true. In other cases, all the the animation heads out there were going, "What are you talking about? We've seen this in in the Clone Wars, in Rebels." And not everyone who's watching the live action shows or Andor specifically has seen all those things. So you can't expect everyone to have encyclopedic, Wikipedic knowledge of of everything that has ever happened in these shows. And of course, it it hits different in live action in some ways as well. But these shows sort of created that template and, and really set the the expectation that we would delve more deeply into some things than we could in a two-hour movie. And you were higher than I was on season one of Bad Batch, but I liked it too. I think I, I gave it a, a solid B plus when we did our post-finale pod. And I was optimistic after it ended because I thought that while it didn't measure up to the best seasons of its predecessor series, it did compare very favorably to the first seasons of The Clone Wars and Rebels, which both got better as they went along. So I thought, okay, if it's starting from this fairly high point, then if it follows the same trajectory, which is not a guarantee, but maybe it gets great instead of just good and solid, which was sort of how I saw it. So I think I was intrigued by the underserved time period, you know, this time period between the prequel trilogy and the original trilogy especially prior to Obi-Wan Kenobi and Andor. This was just not something we had seen a lot of on screen, especially this specific time. But there are also some limitations of that time period, which is maybe why it was undercovered before. You know, there are certain things that we know can't happen for a while, right? And so that's kind of a, a confining factor potentially at this point in the timeline. And it's not a sensational series, right? It's not something that we cover on a weekly basis necessarily. It's not something that is dominating water cooler conversations or whatever the work from home equivalent of that is now. It's not necessarily something that you're running to Disney Plus to watch at 3 a.m. Eastern. <laughs> but I was always happy to spend 20 something minutes a week in that world. And I think when I wrote about it, I said it was sort of niche by nature in that it was fan service but but in a good way, right? It, it was for fans of the previous series who got some questions answered. You know, there were a lot of cases where some obscure Clone Wars character from season two or season five of Clone Wars would show up again. And people who watched those series were wondering what happened to, to that character. And now we got those answers or we got to see some old favorites again. And as you said, they did a great job of incorporating crossover characters like Caleb slash Kanan and Cad Bane and Fennec Shand and Tarkin and, and Rex. Remarkable. So yeah. I, I saw it as sort of like a good supporting player, you know, which is 
all it has to be when you have Mando and Ahsoka and Andor around to be your headliners, right? It's it's kind of something that you schedule in between those series or maybe with some overlap. It's a little lower stakes and it can get a little formulaic at times. And, and there were a few snoozer standalone <laughs> episodes, I would say. But on the whole, I thought it was really promising. And even though it it kind of followed that format of like the precocious kid taken care of by the ill-equipped guardian, you know, I I loved Omega. It, it's Damn, sort of yeah. a, a tough In this act. case, the precocious kid has exactly. to be, uh, happens to be older than the, uh, <laughs> yeah, just like Grogu. He's 50, yeah. right? He's 50! <laughs> but it's a tough act <laughs> to follow. because baby! Yeah, but you have, you know, like the Ahsoka-Anakin yeah. relationship and the Grogu-Mandu relationship and then yeah. later even the Leia-Obi-Wan relationship. Yeah. It's, it's a tried and true Star Wars tradition, It folks. is. Yeah, it's <laughs> very, very tried and, and also very true. But I think it, it compares pretty well there. And what I wanted to see more of, and as we transition into talking about the premiere here, I, I think we start to see some signs of it, is some development of the core characters. Because you do have kind of these, these archetypes, you know, you have like the strong one who's not so smart and the less strong one who's very smart. And they all have their respective, you know, their particular set of skills and traits. And I think because of that, and maybe, you know, as as great as as D. Baker is at voicing all of these characters, having one person play everyone, <laughs> it's a challenging assignment. And I just I felt like I wanted to see more development, more interplay, more perhaps conflict between the core characters other than Crosshair and find out what's going on in their heads a little more. And so I hope that's what we'll see in season two. And I think there are some signs of that in the first couple episodes. Well, so let's let's go right into the the overall impressions that we had of the two part premiere off of that point, because the premiere was very, uh, I'll say premiere, but in saying premiere, I mean both episodes. <laughs> the premiere was very echo and tech centric. And I thought with, it, it was enjoyable for both characters, but I thought with Echo in particular, I was like, man, Echo has developed a bit of an attitude and I am here for it. It's yeah. working. I love it. Like I love seeing him push his family members push his fellow members of Clone Force 99 and fight for what he believes is important. Obviously, Omega is central to these episodes as well. Hunter, definitely less of a focal point in the premiere than he was in many other stretches. Wrecker as well. We have this division of the team where Hunter and Wrecker are off together for much of the episodes. And uh, Omega is with Tech and Echo, and we meet a few new friends who we'll chat about in a few minutes here. What did you what, what what did you think overall, both in respect of of that fleshing out of certain character sets, but also just in general of these two episodes, which were very mission centric, but didn't connect maybe to that larger story in the way that we might have anticipated, both given the way that season one ended. And also, I think, frankly, given the way that season one started, where we had this Order 66 of it all and so many tethers to the larger narrative, the the budding role of the, the budding galactic conflict and the creep and encroachment of the Empire fists, that closing fists, right, is certainly present in the premiere that absolute piece of shit, Vice Admiral Rampart, <laughs> is 
here, mm-hmm. but we don't have crosshair. I would say the primary antagonist of interest, given his direct personal history and relationship with our main characters, uh, not in the premiere. I was despondent because I love Crosshair. <laughs> have I mentioned that yet, Ben? I love Crosshair and I can't wait to be back with him. Yeah. What did you think? I think it's interesting that that a lot of Star Wars series haven't necessarily come out of the gate with the most attention-grabbing episodes, right? I mean, of course, you save something big for finales, but often you want to kind of come out with something that's headline-grabbing, right? And I wouldn't say that they did that here. It's it's almost like going back to Book of Boba or, or Obi-Wan where, you know, it was, or, or even Andor to some extent where, you know, they released three at, at once and it's kind of like underwhelming, at least to some people at a start, you know, compared to what comes after. So if you thought it was a negative that, that Bad Batch wasn't necessarily like appointment TV, I need to see it this second because something huge with major mythological lore implications could get spoiled for me. It's not really that kind of show for the most part. And if you thought, I wonder whether it will be that type of show more in season two, which is still a possibility, but not something that they showed here. They didn't really come out of the gate with that kind of pull. I still enjoyed the episodes. I think if you think of maybe the the more sort of overarching implications for lore sort of storylines that we have in the Bad Batch. And, and maybe we'll get into some speculation a little bit later. But, you know, you have the mystery to the extent that there's a mystery about Omega, right? And, and her capabilities and how she ties into cloning and Palpatine's efforts and Boba Fett and people speculating about her special skills. You know, everyone in the, the Bad Batch has some sort of skill. Is she just very perceptive and, and precocious and quick to pick things up? Or as some people have speculated, is there some force sensitivity here? You know, I don't know how that would work just genetically speaking, but people were expecting that sort of reveal. So we didn't get much on that score or her relationship with Nala Say, right? And, you know, how did they bond and and how did she become, you know, coming up in, in Camino in this very sterile antiseptic environment, how did she become the open-hearted, warm-hearted person she is, right? It's not necessarily something that you see other clones just wearing their hearts on their sleeves the way that, that she does. So you'd want to know more about her origins. Then you also have, I guess, the ongoing story about the transition from the clones to the TK troopers, right? And the replacement there. So we don't see much there. We see clone troopers in these episodes, right? And then you know, you have Crosshair, as you said, what motivated his change of heart late in season one. Was his inhibitor chip really removed or does he just <laughs> think it was? And then I guess you, you also know my have... take on that. I know, <laughs> you do. We might disagree on that. But then, of course, you know, you have Jedi survivors and, and Padawans, and we know from the trailer that there will be at least a little bit of that at some point this season. So all of those kind of sexy sort of storylines. And I don't mean just tech, although he was obviously in this episode, but <laughs> but all the others, <laughs> there wasn't so much of that. So if this was just sort of, you know, more Bad Batch, which I think is a good thing. But if you weren't so into it in season one, there wasn't that strong a case that, okay, now I need to, to tap into this, as our pal Jomi would say. I think that there were a, a few signs of evolution, though. As you said, having Tech and Echo kind of take center stage here. Probably the most underserved bad batchers of season one kind of had a tendency to fade into the background and they take a much more prominent role here. 
we see a, a more capable Omega in some ways. Like a few months have passed. She's clearly pretty adept. She's a marksman now. And and we started to incredible I think, skill with the bow. Guess she got those bicep curls in and strengthened those <laughs> yeah. arms. Took that advice to heart. <laughs> and I think, you know, we started to get into the the psyche of the clones and, and their motivation and the sense that this is not just an episode of the week, mission of the week, you know, mercenaries. They are starting to develop a, a conscience and decide what they want to do as a result and maybe have some disagreement internally, which is good and intriguing. And then in some of the the guest characters in in Romar, we get the effects of of war on people who are sort of outside of the frame and and reframing that conflict, which was always one of the strengths of the Clone Wars was making us look at this, you know, just like Jedi versus droids, just, you know, endlessly slaughtering droid after droid after droid. Like there were human and, and non-human costs to this conflict that might not really have been on the big screen. So that's, I think, a sign of incorporating that that Clone Wars strength more so than season one did. Yeah, I uh, I agree. If anyone, by the way, is wondering what we're talking about when we reference our previously stated opinions on the crosshair inhibitor, inhibitor chip, but don't mention what those opinions are, you don't have to go back to listen to our season one finale to hear them. I'll quickly sum them up here, though you can go back and listen to that full podcast. I stand by my take, Ben, that it's more powerful if he did, in fact, have the chip removed and made those choices. It's more powerful, and I hope that's what happens, but we'll see. I remain open to any number of possibilities. And when he's back in the show, we'll have the opportunity to find out. I can't wait. Yeah, I was just suspicious because uh, she's he's having headaches, you know, at the end of the season. What does that who, mean? Who among us doesn't have a, a moment <laughs> or two uh, each day, let alone when yes. escaping an attack on Topeka City <laughs> where you might need to put your hand in your yeah, head and lean forward for a situation. minute? Yeah, yeah, there's a lot going on. There's a lot going on, Ben, uh, I I broadly agree with your 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 assessment of the two part premiere. I enjoyed it. I always enjoy episodes of the Bad Batch, and it definitely felt more like some of the episodes and arcs in season one that wouldn't make my list of my favorite season one episodes. Like my favorite season one episodes and arcs, you know the 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 mega premiere aftermath where we have, you know, Caleb and Order 66 and meet Omega and get the crosshair split, see Saw Gerrera, all of that, obviously. The 789 stretch of Battle Scars Reunion, Bounty Loss, which is the Rex stretch, the inhibitor chip removal, that incredible ion engine fight on Bracca, the Cad Bane and Fennec sequence, some some heavier incorporation of the cloning uh, winks for the future. I think the Devil's Deal and Rescue on Ryloth episodes, which were frankly, barely Bad Batch episodes in the sense that they were really Hera episodes were a delight to me because I love Hera and Chopper so much. But also, you know, with Hauser's Choice, for example, I think did introduce canon that will be really, or, or, or zoom in on canon that will be really important in the rest of the series about clone troopers who continue to make a new choice. It's not just what did you do the minute Order 66 you were told to execute Order 66. Like, that's not the end of a trooper's opportunity to forge a different path, right? And then, obviously, the the finale for for um, many reasons, including the visual <laughs> splendor and uh, how much time we got to spend with my beloved Crosshair. So, you know, in some ways, I was a little bit surprised that this episode was a little bit more of the 
mission of the week Bad Batch variety than one of those like canon connection bangers. But I, I think that for all the reasons you mentioned, it was still a really strong thematic opening note for the season because of the fleshing out of some of the characters who had been a little bit more in like the 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 shadows in season one and the reasons you said about those like those those questions about choice and consequence and like the examination of the idea both in the conversations that they're having with other people like Ramar but also the conversations that they're having between them the back and forth between Echo and Hunter Echo and Tech etc that it's not just the one choice you make initially to break away from the Empire, to take Omega off of Kamino. There's every day a new choice to make. And every day, especially when you're out working as mercenaries or running missions for Sid and are exposed on so many planets and in so many places to the plight, to what so quickly the Galactic Empire has wrought and the ruin and destruction already coming to define life in the Imperial era. So to go to Sereno and have those conversations about the war chest and the nature of, of Dooku accumulating and amassing that wealth and uh, the oppression of other planets and other people, yes, but also his own people and everything that the Romar character unlocked, I thought was really important and powerful and like in a fun way, certainly coming off of Andor connects to a lot of what we all were so stimulated discussing during the Andor run. The necessity of staring in the face what is happening around you and then like, can you decide not to do something about it? Like, What does it mean if that's the choice you make? So I loved that like other characters were posing that question to our bad batchers, but also that they were discussing that with each other. And in that sense, I thought the episodes were were compelling. Yeah. Or even when you have to decide how accurate you want to be in your after action report that's going to get approved <laughs> by yeah. Rampart. Captain Wilco. Boy. <laughs> This is, this is like when I file a piece and, and you, uh, you're you editing it and you write in the suggestions that you think maybe I should add something and I have to weigh, do I want to do that or uh, am I going to suffer some consequences here? So I thought I, it, I thought you were going to say it's like when I ask you for an estimated file time and word count <laughs> and then we discuss the inaccuracy of the mission report. <laughs> that happens too. Yeah. No, your, uh, your suggestions and, and requests are always much more reasonable. You would never ask me to, to lie about encountering the Bad Batch, but just saying. <laughs> so let's chat a little bit about the mission. We open uh, in, the, in the midst of a different mission, lovely tropical planet with some feisty local crab life. I was like, is my guy the crab feeder about to make an appearance here? <laughs> my goodness, if only <laughs> Prince Drehar had access to, the, to these crabs. But the bulk of, after a return to Sid's parlor, the bulk of the two episodes centers on the Sereno heist. The objective is to head to Count Dooku, ever heard of him, to his old den on Sereno and pilfer his vast war chest before the Empire takes it all. Now, I have a, a Dooku question here. I'm just curious as a Star Wars enthusiast for your, your, your read on this. 
why do you think Dooku and Dooku adjacent Star Wars content is is having a moment right now? Because like this year, obviously, but he was so central to Tales of the Jedi is basically the second lead of Tales of the Jedi after Ahsoka, right? What what do you think is is sparking the the Dooku assance here? Yeah, I mean, I guess he was underexplored to some extent. I mean, when you think of how much we know about other servants of Palpatine, other apprentices, how much we've seen of Darth Maul, how much we know about Anakin, comparatively speaking, we don't know nearly as much about Dooku, about Darth Tyrannus, and he's kind of, he's an intriguing character, right? And he's he's different, right? Like he's uh, he's fallen to the dark side, but he's still, he's very uh, refined, very elegant. You know, he doesn't uh, smolder quite as much as the other apprentices do. He's sort of seems uh, calm and, and in control most of the time. And he comes from this, you know, aristocratic background and, and the whole question of how did he fall? How did he get seduced? And of course, he has, you know, Qui-Gon connections. So he's sort of wired in. Yoda connections. Yeah. So he's yeah. very closely connected to all these other characters we know much more about and who have gotten much more screen time. I mean, we don't even know what his name is <laughs> exactly, right? We know that that Palpatine is Sheev, but is is Dooku his first name? Is Dooku his last name? I don't know. I guess he's Dooku of House Sereno, technically. Maybe Sereno is his surname. There's a lot more <laughs> that we have to learn about Dooku. So uh, sadly, <sighs> Christopher Lee is, is no longer with us to, to bring life to this character. But I think there was a, a lot of territory here to mine. So give me more, Dooku. I'm on board. Yeah, me too. I really do enjoy learning more about Dooku. I We talked about this a bit during the Obi-Wan run last summer, but I had a fucking blast reading Claudia Gray's Master and Apprentice and the the the, the Dooku Qui-Gon canon that we get in that is just uh fascinating. So, I'm I'm excited to continue to have Dooku in our lives. Who knows what we'll learn next. It was also just really fun to be back on Sereno because we got a lot of Sereno action in the Clone Wars, like including some real banger episodes and stretches. Night Sisters, obviously, chief among them. Shout out. Mm-hmm. Shout out the Night Sisters now and always. Magic. <laughs> so it was really fun to be back there in his throne room. Uh, I, I'm curious in terms of the mission itself, Ben, how it compares to the type of mission you most enjoy seeing the Bad Batch attempt. Is this kind of cargo container, (laughs) heist, let's get in and out and attempt to avoid detection, but inevitably (laughs) end up in the thick of a fight where everyone we're facing is trying to kill us and we remain steadfastly determined to only use stunners. <laughs> yes. Uh, is that is that the kind of mission that you most enjoy? Is there another type of, of Bad Batch mission that you find more compelling? Yeah, when I referred to episodes sometimes seeming a bit formulaic, this is kind of what I was getting at, that there's a, a similar format and template to a lot of these missions, raids, heists. Often in season one, it would be Omega, you know, she cares so much. She wants to help everyone. She's very selfless. And so she would always want to just be in the thick of things and volunteer to help out. And the other bad batchers would be resistant and reluctant and they'd have to be convinced. And sometimes they would have to rescue her, although she was quite capable herself, even in season one. And so 
sort of following the same, you know, along the same lines here. Uh, she's not the only one who is uh, captured or separated from the group. They've all been captured or separated at some point, even Hunter. But, you know, here we see her trapped, but also using her her wits and her knowledge. And she's been studying all the, the characteristics yeah. of the ships, right? And so she's, she's able to been, put that to use. She's coming for you. She's yeah. coming for you as the... Star Wars lore expert. I guess she's so, yeah. studying every, she she's on Wikipedia every night, <laughs> yeah, studying she, every single ship, make, and model. Using those flashcards, she's telling the Lambdas from the Deltas. So, yeah, she knows that, you know, they can uh, jump out when the escape pods are ejected. They can just get in one of these cargo pods and, and it'll settle them, not easily, but <laughs> safely alive down to the ground. So definitely not a another happy landing outcome no, there. No. <laughs> Tech and his femur have some notes. <laughs> yeah. I would I think I, I kind of enjoy when they they intersect, I guess, with the underworlds a, a little, you know, which they did in season one. Sometimes those weren't always the best episodes, but you know, when they kind of are on the the seedy side of things, the underbelly, the unsavory side and there are these, you know, I mean, they were always kind of, they were that kind of clones, you know, they weren't regs, they weren't following the rules necessarily. So they were always operating, coloring outside the lines a little bit, but it's obviously far from their experience as, as soldiers to be in that world. So I guess I'd like to see a little bit more of that, but it, it seems like we're heading more toward this kind of, you know, Bad Batch versus the Empire, bigger scale military conflict with objectives, you know, as it turns out, they don't actually achieve their objectives in these episodes. They leave empty handed. Right. And they learn something in the process, of course, and and there's evolution among the characters. But kind of going along with, you know, what you're saying, not only did this seem like sort of a season one Bad Batch episode, but in terms of the MacGuffin of this episode or what they're actually trying to achieve here nothing is really accomplished, you know, in the sense that if they're trying to raid this war chest so that they can secure themselves, they can stop taking the mission of the week assignments. That's clearly not in their immediate future because they have to leave Sereno empty handed, except for the kaleidoscope. Not, yeah, except not for empty. The and, That's important and then, too. Yeah. It, how about the personal growth yes. that they took with it, them? Right? It's not all the about real treasure. The credits. Yeah. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, I will say if uh, our beloved AZ had been invited on the mission, which I think he should be in the future. Maybe, maybe he could have found a way to, to get just a couple of those jewels. I think the personal growth was the real treasure and that's great, but maybe AZ could have helped with a jewel or two. On that front, Ben, the personal growth, the way that the characters are pushing each other toward this breakthrough, you know, as we, as we mentioned, Echo is really at the heart of that in this episode, particularly the way he's pushing in a renewed fashion, to join the fight against the Empire in a true and full way. Now, this idea of freedom and sticking it to the Empire is present in a couple ways in the episode, but ways that are important in their distinction from each other. So, like, the opening impetus for the mission, the sales pitch that Sid makes because Hunter is, it'll shock you to hear, reluctant and thinks it's too dangerous and not a good idea. Now, I will say in Hunter's defense, she they are right. presumed dead. <laughs> He's completely right about that. Yeah. Or not. So yeah. he was right. <laughs> he was right. But Sid's pitch hinges on get rich enough to be truly free of the um, empire. Crucially, 
not so that you with that newly won freedom can go help other people, but so that you can help yourself. And so that I, Sid, can maintain my business and my operation without interference. And that motivation shifts just inside of these two episodes of TV toward thinking about the larger good and the larger moral imperative at play here. So one of the things that Echo says to Hunter early in the course of discussing Omega and how they wound up living this life in the first place, Echo says taking her off Camino was the right thing to do, but there are others who need our help. We've seen what the Empire's doing throughout the galaxy. We should be doing more. That we should be doing more line was featured centrally in the trailers for season two, and it like clearly was going to be one of the core areas of emphasis here at the beginning. And then Tech, uh, Echo says to Tech later, the Empire's growing stronger and we're still doing nothing about it. Why do you think it's Echo specifically who is making this push? Because he does have a different history from the rest of the Bad Batch, not only in terms of their pre-existing relationship with each other, but his tie to Rex, who is in the fray, who is in the fight, who is asking them to join him in season one. Why is Echo in a different spot right at the beginning here from the rest of Clone Force 99? Well, he started as a reg, right? He was just a regulation clone. He was part of the rank and file. And so I think it's harder for him to separate himself because the Bad Batch always saw itself as a, a separate entity, just a, an island within the larger clone army, the Grand Army that operated differently and always achieved its mission, but didn't play by the same rules. And Echo, you know, because he was he was one of the, the larger brotherhood in a more intimate way than the Bad Batch were. They were insular. They were tightly connected to each other, but not so much to the other clones because of that and because of his capture and his exposure to war and the, the suffering he went through. Not that the rest of the Bad Batch have had it easy, but he's he's seen some shit, you know, that that maybe they haven't. And because of that, I think it's it's harder for him to to turn his back and walk away and just prioritize self-preservation, which we've seen this how many times in Star Wars? You know, it's it's Han Solo getting his reward and saying, you don't think I'd be fool enough to stick around here. Right. But of course, he comes back to to save the day just in time for Luke to blow up the Death Star or Cassian what? Andor. <laughs> yeah. Right. Cassian Endor trying to chill on Niamos, right? And just enjoy the beach planet and take himself out of the fight. And then it turns out that you can't, you know, if you have a conscience, if you have a heart, or even if you don't, which arguably Cassian at, at that point was okay with just staying on the sidelines, but you can't because there are no sidelines. You know, it's it's an all-encompassing conflict. And each of those characters and others have had to reckon with that at some point. So we're seeing that reckoning with the clones, right? And, and they feel some obligation to Omega, obviously. They know that if they're in the thick of the fight, then Omega is going to be in greater danger. But she always wants to help. She wouldn't want them to stay out of this fight for her sake. So it's very much concerned with uh, her not wanting to sabotage the Bad Batch's life, right? You know, I mean, she is worried that that she has kind of laid, led them astray. She's led to them being fugitives and being chased and hunted and on the run. And of course, they've realized that they're better off 
with her and away from the empire's clutches. So it's not a huge leap to go from that to, well, we helped her. We're better off without the empire. Omega's better off without the empire. Therefore, so would everyone else. And potentially we could help. I love what you said about Echo's really tragic history, you know, presumed dead after the horrors at the Citadel and Rex's unyielding conviction after this discovery in season seven of Clone Wars to find him, rescue him, to not give up, finds him as basically like a a cryo computer. He's like half droid now after this horrific stretch and he wouldn't be where he is now. He wouldn't have this new family if Rex had given up. And I, I liked that as an added layer of richness in this episode where Omega thinks that Echo, because of what she overheard between Echo and Hunter, resents the fact that they went to rescue her when Echo would would appreciate more than any other character how important it was to have somebody who was willing to do that for you and then protect you and then bring you into your family. And like, again, I think that's one of the things that I really like about the Bad Badge universe, that it's not just about that first decision you make. It's about what comes after. And... The insistence that Omega has throughout these two episodes to keep going, keep pushing, not give up. I need that treasure. I have to get the war chest. We can't leave without it. We can't leave without it. And when Echo finally like is like, like kid, what's going on here? Why, why are you not willing to, to just let this go? And she says, I wanted to make things better for us. I know you all gave up everything because of me. And Echo replies, good thing we did. Or we might be fighting for the Empire right now. Or worse, or worse. we made the right, <laughs> right choice, Omega. I'd do it all again. It's a it's a poignant moment. Yeah. I like the portrayal of uh, Omega in these episodes because she is more capable. I mean, she's laying down, covering fire. She's fighting off the crabs. She's uh, helping herself out of the shipping container. But also, there's a shot where we see her in her little makeshift bedroom in the Marauder where she's cradling a stuffed animal, you know? I mean, she is just a kid. And Lulu, yeah. Even though she's she's older <laughs> than the other Bad Batchers. And, you know, I'd, I'd like to know more about their histories, but they don't have a lot of history. <laughs> they haven't been alive for very long, which I'd, I'd like to know more of. I'd like to know like what they think of that, of this accelerated aging that Omega doesn't have. You know, Do they have fear of their mortality, which is more rapidly approaching or what? But you can sort of see that even though she is capable, she is also still immature in some ways, You know, not only physically compared to the other clones, but, but emotionally. And just the idea that she's fixated on, I got them into this situation. I mean, it's clearly not really worse than, than where they would be otherwise, right? Either they would be foot soldiers of the empire or they would be dead or they'd be perpetrating atrocities. I mean, they weren't going to have it great if they hadn't run into Omega. So the fact that she heard a snippet of this conversation and she's just sort of fixating on what I've done, you know, it's it's almost like a, a childlike thing, which is, it's good. She's just kind of a, a combination of like, you know, more capable, more mature than her years than she should be at this age. And also in some ways, very age appropriate and inexperienced and immature. So we're getting to see her evolve in real time. Right. I would, I would nuzzle and hug Lula too. If I had a little Lula, Lula love Lula, beautiful, wonderful. It's you, you're right. It's like, it's a coming of age story for all of the characters because they are learning and evolving and growing in so many respects. That's a great question about like their mortality and how they think about it. And it strikes me as something that, 
their perspective on could could change over the course of of this season and this series because it is a new reality the way they think about their life like part of what this group did in season 1 wasn't just deciding not to fight for the empire it wasn't just deciding to go back for omega it was like the 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 chasm that opened up because of crosshairs good soldiers follow orders insistence and the ability to like forge their own path and take this always present and defining quality which is like we do things our way and then apply that more broadly in a way that actually connects them to more people rather than isolating them and then in the process of forging those new and powerful connections with more people presumably uh, makes them like cherish and prize this humanity and these bonds that they've built i think that'll be a really a really cool thing to see and also the clones were were basically bred and decanted for for an individual you know short term mission we want to win this war and it wasn't clear what they would do beyond that that's why they're accelerated aging right we want to age them up quickly so we can just throw them into the fray and who knows what happens after that? They probably didn't expect to survive to that point. So now that that particular conflict is over and now they're engaged in a new one that clearly isn't going to be an overnight thing. You know, if they're trying to to fight back, resist the empire, topple the empire, that's clearly going to be a long term effort. And so are they looking long term, you know, now that they've gone beyond that? that single short-term well-defined mission and either have been a little more aimless in terms of what do I want to accomplish with my life or now maybe starting to devote themselves to what is clearly going to be something that they're in for the long haul to the extent that they have a long haul. So I hope that that is something that's explored at some point. Me too. And it's, it's, it's interesting in general to see what life is like for the clones later on. Like it was so amazing in Rebels to see old Rex and Gregor and Wolf. And like, we don't know what the future is for these characters. So is old man Hunter out there somewhere (laughs) listening to the vibrations on the forest floor? Like I, I, it's, it's distinctly possible. I can't wait to find out. We're chatting about like connection and these interactions with other figures across the galaxy. And we met a few new characters of note. We've already talked a bit about one of them, Romar Adele, in this episode, Serenian local, hiding out in the woods as the Imperial forces obliterate the city, turn it into ruins. He initially thinks that Clone Force 99 is with the Empire. They worry that he might be with the Empire. We get like an Understandable amusing... Understandable mistake. Yeah, of course. <laughs> yeah. We get a very amusing... So you're telling... Wait, what you're telling me is your rogue clones running from the Empire's clones who used to be the Republic's clones, summation from him, followed by text. Correct. You finally got it right. Text slays me. Love him. And he points out to them they they have some 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 lovely rapid bonding and team building over the course of the premiere but he points out to them in their in their early interactions how they might be more similar to the other troopers than they care to admit and I, what i liked about this is that it was running in parallel with something that they were already mulling and thinking about in their own group like when they're talking about building a war chest by exploiting others and the horror of what Dooku has done. Echo says, that's what corrupt people do. And Omega asks, but isn't that what we're doing? And Echo says, it depends on how we use it. And 
it, it, it makes me think of a through line of so many of our different fantasy story discussions, which is that idea of intention, right? But also of seeing the larger picture and thinking about how your choices impact other people. So the the presence of Romar in this episode of like getting the Bad Batch to ask these big questions or just to absorb an idea, like there were a few really powerful instances of that. I really liked t- two in particular when it, he showed tech he asked to, to borrow a tool and tech is like this oh separatist archive he's talking about this the history of his people their art their culture everything here in this in this machine he's trying to restore and what does he say in response to tech he says not separatists serenian we did exist before the war you know and tech says honestly that he had never thought about it that way before like this is like a key moment and breakthrough of expanding perspective for these characters and similarly he gives omega a toy this is lovely like kaleidoscope she's looking into it she thinks it's jewels she thinks it's treasure (laughs) and he he's like genuinely shocked that she doesn't know that this is just a an item to bring you pleasure and he says oh for blast sake it's a toy makes you happy and believe me that is worth more than any jewel and then as they're departing near the end he gives it back to her and it's something that she takes with her and will will carry with her and I, I have no doubt we'll see her looking at that many moments in the future because it has unlocked something for her not only about childhood innocence and what it means to be a kid, but the different sources to happiness and joy and purpose. Yeah, there hasn't been a lot of leisure time, a lot of recreational activity for clones in general, maybe more so for Omega than the others, but we don't know exactly the nature of her relationship on Camino and her situation. So I think this is a good example of what I was saying before about how because of the time that the Clone Wars allowed, it really reframed some of the conflicts for characters, but also for us, the viewers, and looking at these things in different ways and moving beyond just separatist versus republic or enemy versus ally and questioning, you know, wait, are we the baddies or just like, are there any baddies? Are we all baddies? Is there a point to this war? And I love that idea of, you know, you might define us as as separatists, but no, we were Serenians for a long time before we were separatists. And one thing I, I hope is explored in greater depth, and it's sort of hinted at here, is that it has to be crossing these clones' minds. What we're doing is not so different, maybe in some ways, from what the separatists that we were just recently fighting were doing, right? I mean, if their goal was to oppose this tyrannical, as they saw it, republic, and the republic morphed into the empire, and now we're dedicated to taking down the empire, are we sort of separatists? What does that mean? Were we on the wrong side of the conflict all the while? You know, was our entire purpose and our our reason for being were we on the wrong side, which I mean, to some extent they were, they were hoodwinked all along, right? By the guy with the hood, literally like they were <laughs> manipulated and, you know, they just, they didn't know they were cannon fodder. They were deployed in service of, of the aims of this mysterious, you know, puppet master who's pulling the strings behind the scenes. And they're learning all of that now, first of all, that there's more than just what the front lines are and who's fighting you can be defined by more than what side of the conflict you are. 
but also that the sides of the conflict aren't as clear as they may have seemed when they were, you know, just launched out of their bottle and, and a rifle was put in their hands. Right. Absolutely. I, I It's a great point. It was one of the really rewarding aspects of the Clone Wars series, like the... <laughs> The manipulation of Palpatine's puppet war and the horrors and atrocities of the the the, the Dooku, the grievous, uh, corrupt regime, that's all true in there. But when you head to a planet like Raxus and you meet the regular people who are fighting to forge a different path away from a governing body that they don't believe serves them, that's a more nuanced picture than we had previously gotten to see. And and I think you're right that that'll be something that the characters consider more here too. We didn't get quite as much time with our other new character as we did with Romar, but we met another intriguing new figure. Fee, Genoa, voiced by Wanda Sykes. Yep. Anytime I hear the word pirate in a Star Wars story, I'm immediately like, I miss Hondo powerfully <laughs> and, and desperately and need Hondo in my life. I'm excited about Fee, who feeds the Sereno intel to Sid uh, to see what role what role Fee plays moving forward, how central Fee will be this season. I want to hear any Fee thoughts you might have, but I, I, I think we would be remiss if we didn't begin with Fee and Tech, do we ship it? Because Fee <laughs> hits on Tech. Yeah. Tech botches it in astonishing <laughs> fashion. And I'm curious if you, a Tech is the hottest bad batcher, longtime Stan, felt that this was a win for you, given that <laughs> Fee was immediately like, wow. Yeah. Got a name, Brown Eyes, or whether you considered this a crushing blow, given that Tech's <laughs> response to "Got a name, Brown Eyes" was Tech. However, the phenotypic <laughs> eye color for all clones is brown. Iris pigmentation was not affected by our mute, and then cut off before he could finish. Yeah. I'm gonna take the W here. I think I, just the <laughs> the raw chemistry that Tech exudes. Clearly, the effect is not just limited to me. So he felt it too. And, you know, look, he hasn't had a lot of experience uh, with this sort of banter. I wouldn't say he's done a lot of flirting in his brief life. So he has some lessons to learn. They all do. We said this is a coming of age story. This is just a perfect example of one way in which they might need to come of age. So, you know, by the end of the season, maybe Tech's just spitting game left and right. Who knows? Wow. Yeah. Old prediction. You heard it here first. How often do you think that the the tablet that Tech always has in his hand is set on incognito mode? You know? <laughs> I don't want to speculate about what goes on <laughs> in the Marauder off screen in their uh... own the privacy of their quarters and cabins. But as for Fee, I think as I was saying, I enjoy the the connections to the underworld. So this seems like another obvious one. I don't know how she'll she'll fit into the the larger arc of the season, but Happy to have uh, another great comic actress <laughs> just in the in the mix, I guess. So we'll see. I mean, happy to have the the crew expand and the ensemble expand because there's not as great an ensemble in the Bad Batch as there was in the Clone Wars, certainly, where you had any number of point of view characters and supporting players, and then you know you have the whole the Ghost Crew and Rebels. So it can be a little limiting at times to have just clone after clone after clone. So I'm, I'm always happy to expand the ensemble a little bit. Well, speaking of expanding the ensemble, I'm curious 
what you think we'll we'll see on that front specifically with the the villains, with the antagonists, with the empire. We we had Rampart here at the very end. We did not have Crosshair. Obviously, Tarkin very present in season one. Will Tarkin be back in the fold? Will Rampart remain the primary foe through the entire season? Do you think that some other Empire figure will cast Rampart aside quickly? Like, is he the big bad of the show? Is Crosshair? Yeah. <laughs> I, I wasn't that in on Rampart in season one. He he was just kind of, you know, cookie cutter, true believer you know, without, I think, some of the interesting wrinkles that we've seen with uh, with other Imperial or, or First Order execs. You know, I mean, you had, of course, Agent Callus and in, in Rebels and, and you wouldn't My expect... My beloved Callus. Yeah, yeah, like <laughs> you, you wouldn't expect to see Rampart follow the same sort of, you know, converting, making a face turn sort of arc that we're seeing. And, you know, others along those lines, I mean, Thrawn is, you know, he's a bad guy, but he's like an incredibly intriguing bad guy who has all of these incredible character quirks that set him apart from everyone else. Or, you know, someone like Hux, right, who's who's also a true believer, but is uh, very self-interested and, you know, is like squabbling at work with Kylo and they had their, their great buddy dynamic going on. So none of that really happening with Rampart to this point. I think what we see with him at the end of the second episode here where he just ruthlessly shoots Captain Wilco in the face, you know, Andor style, basically, just yeah, to, cover to cover his, his own ass, ass yeah. right? I think that was a positive sign because that wasn't just on the, <laughs> <laughs> not for Captain Wilco, but I think Certainly not. Yeah. <laughs> for Rampart as a character, just in the sense that this was, you know, a little more than just like the loyal foot soldier. This was also some of the the aspects that we saw in Andor, the series, that we really valued about seeing just how like venal and corrupt and self-interested all of these Imperials are, right? And they're all kind of rotten to the core, but in this very selfish, almost petty way. And here we see Rampart, who's, you know, killing a clone just casually. First of all, that might tell you something about how the clones are perceived, right? And maybe we're always perceived, but especially at this point in the Empire where the clones are being phased out right, in favor of the TK troopers. troopers. Yep. Yeah, yeah, it's like, you know, this guy's going to be cast aside. Right. And regardless. that's Rampart's program and, right. and push. Yeah. Exactly. So it's like, you know, we're just one clone closer to my desired makeup of, of the military here. But also just that, like... Everyone is motivated by fear. You know, the, the clenching fist is also kind of clenching internally. Like everyone's looking over their shoulders, which is one advantage that maybe the good guys, quote unquote, have is that they're sort of on the same side. Maybe there's a little less backfighting. You know, there's more Nemec's manifesto on that side of things as opposed to just protecting yourself or wanting to stay out of trouble. So if he's ruthless in, in that way and we see some of that infighting and kind of ladder climbing, I think that could be a more interesting aspect of his character that that we saw a little less of in season one. Yeah, I, 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 I agree with that. Okay. Before we do a little more season two speculation, normally if Joe were here, we'd do wig watch. <laughs> we're going to do a very quick armor watch. I have to ask you, we chatted a lot in season one about how it on the one hand, like, we get it. This is their iconic armor and their iconic look. You've got to get a whole new line of merch out there. How, 
utterly baffling it was that characters who were on the run would wear their signature armor <laughs> that is totally distinct in color scheme and also unique helmet design and emblems. So we've got some updating, a little bit of a new color scheme. Some orange accents have entered the, the fray. We've got a, a little a burst of turquoise here and there, some like red scarves. It's something, Ben. But I posit to you that it is not enough. It is not enough no. of a disguise when you were on the run and presumed dead. They were just instantly recognizable. Yeah. No, it's not a smart move. I'd say the best in-universe explanation, I guess, I have is that it's just it's symbolic of how hard it is for them to shed their former affiliations and selves, like their identities were just so inextricably tied up with being clone soldiers that they don't have identities apart from that. So, you know, even in Rebels, when we see old Rex and Gregor and Wolf, like at least a couple of them are still wearing, you know, the armor, right? The 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 breastplates, the shoulder plates, at least some aspects of the armor, because it's just, I mean, this is what they were born and bred and, and really programmed to do. So I wonder whether we'll just see kind of a continual evolution away from the regulation, you know, the bog standard, the OG Bad Batch armor to the point where if they really break free of their pasts and their their prior destinies, then maybe we do see them kind of, you know, customize their own armor or just wear civilian clothes or something that would make it a little less easy to identify some of the most wanted fugitives in the galaxy. <laughs> you know, is that handsome bearded man in a cloak with a lightsaber on his hip. (laughs) 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 Obi-Wan Kenobi? Could it be? I mean, just I need every character in Star Wars to to work on their disguise game. But I think that your explanation there is actually quite lovely. (laughs) Thank you. Okay, let's do just a couple minutes here of season two speculation look ahead. We have only seen the first two episodes. We have not watched any screeners beyond that. We have watched the trailers and we have looked at the the, the episode title list because the names of the episodes were revealed, but we have not seen any episodes beyond one and two. You know, we chatted, the, the first thing I wanted to ask you about was the, the, the prospect of cameos and canon connections because we chatted already about how that was such a fun and successful element of season one. So let's take this in two buckets here. The first one is who we're most excited to see on the canon connections front based on the trailer, based on characters we know definitely are going to be in the show. And then second bucket, hopes and dreams or fears, if you want to go that route. No, nothing actually established to indicate that we might see these characters, but dare we dream? Let's hope. Could it be? Does the timeline and this stretch of the story allow for it? So let's do the the trailer teases first. If anyone listening doesn't want to hear about anything that is in the trailers, if you skip trailers and you don't want to watch them, you can move ahead a few minutes to the 2023 Star Wars look ahead. All right, Ben, based on the trailers, here's what I'm throwing your way. Rex returns. That's It's happening. It's confirmed. No surprise there, but I can't wait. Commander Cody, central to the season two trailers. So this is thrilling. Our guy, Gunji, the (laughs) just absolutely wonderful Wookiee Padawan from the gathering arc of the Clone Wars, the the wonderful stretch where Ahsoka takes the younglings to Ilum to find their kyber crystals. Real Juan chooses the wizard stuff. Just a a beautiful stretch (laughs) of episodes. Bail Organa. Brief glimpse of Bale in the trailer and, of course, Palpy. So 
anything there you want to quickly speculate based on? Who are you most excited to see? You left out Masameta, potentially, who is... Uh, Just so that you could, as we you could know, have this moment here. Yeah. My favorite. <laughs> I've pitched the Masameta standalone yeah. scripted series. No one has called me or, or taken me up on that yet, but always excited to see him. <laughs> excited to see Cody and... And Gunji, like, that'll be a, a change of pace for this series because, yeah. yeah, I mean, it'll be nice to see that character again. But also, like, Andor aside, Bad Batch season one was about the most force-free, you know, after the premiere, after Order 66, there just, there wasn't a lot of force stuff, a lot of Jedi stuff. And I'm fine with that. And we saw how effective that could be in Andor. But having seen that in Andor, I'm I'm almost less precious about wanting to maintain that here. So if they want to slip in some force stuff, that's fine with me. That would be a, a bit of a different look and a wrinkle for this series. So I think those are the ones I'm I'm most excited about. Me too. When Gunji fired up his lightsaber in the trailer, I gasped aloud uh-huh. with <laughs> just jubilation. I cannot wait. I'm so excited. And yeah, I mean, it's kind of a big deal to have Cody in the show and and learn more about Cody's arc. Like, this is a huge prequel and Clone Wars character. And like, what's he think about <laughs> killing, about turning on Obi-Wan Kenobi and about the clones, uh, what they did in Order 66? I mean, we have so many different versions of the response to Order 66. We have characters who couldn't control it like Rex, but were saved, were freed immediately. We have characters like the Bad Batch who were not affected in the same way by the chip. And then we have characters like Cody who had like these meaningful, deep relationships with the Jedi. And the second that order came through, boom, attack, attack. Thank God our 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 beautiful Obi got away. But how is Cody carrying that weight? I, I can't wait to find out. Okay. What about that second bucket? We have no reason to believe we will see any of these characters. We know nothing, but we can hope. We can dream. And some of these seem far-fetched. Some of these seem pretty possible and maybe even inevitable. I'll run through a couple. Let me know if you have any more. Grogu. Have to throw it out there. <laughs> of course. Have to. I mean, of course. our beautiful 50-year-old baby <laughs> wouldn't be 50 here. No. Even more of a little baby. And like, <laughs> especially after the Grogu Order 66 flashback that we got, I, oh, I mean, I think the only question is like, filling in these years for Grogu, it's happening. It will. It has to. The question is where, right? Are we going to mm-hmm. get something as precious as that here? Will that happen in the Book Mandalorian? season two. <laughs> yeah, like, <laughs> right. I guess, I guess anything's possible. <laughs> Speaking of Boba, he's next on the list, Ben, right? I mean, it, it has to happen at some point. Omega yeah, and Boba have to You can't have interact. Omega without Alpha. He's got to be right. there at some point. Yeah. Exactly. Ahsoka? Mon Mothma, the Inquisitors. We mentioned Maul as a possibility when we talked about potential season one appearances because Maul is such a, a, a treasured fave of Dave Filoni. And, you know, he's alive at this point in the in the timeline. It could happen. Yep. Yeah. I mean, I would love to see Grogues, even though it, maybe it would seem like sort of a stunt, but but I don't care. I'm always happy to, to see little baby Yodes. And I think it would be a way... <laughs> to link the Bad Batch to the larger timeline. Because what I was saying before about just the challenges of this part of the timeline, 
it's all well and good if they decide to join the fight and join the resistance here. But as we know, we're almost 15 years before Andor at this point. And even come Andor, they're still just kind of getting off the ground, getting organized, getting together. So there's a limit to how much they can accomplish at this point. It's not like they can swing the course of the fight, you know, just doing hit and run raids on the Empire isn't going to end the Empire's reign. We just we know there are certain things that can't happen at this point. So if they were involved with Grogu, I mean, if they had if they played some part in his rescue, then or you know, ferrying him from place to place, helping hide him. That would be a way to to kind of connect, you know, have like larger reverberations of the Bad Batch. And and yeah, I mean, Boba's got to be there at some point, right? We got Fennec. Boba's just got to show up and and find out he has a sister and and wrestle with what that means and and fill her in on, on what Jango was like. I mean, there's just a lot that has to happen there. I will be legitimately stunned if Boba is not in this season. He, he that's the only one I would be stunned by if we if we didn't get it. On the Grogu front, the 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 yes, knowing that Grogu someone took Grogu from the Jedi Temple, like how many handoffs are there? How many different characters are involved in keeping Grogu safe? Uh, the other the other reason though, of course, that I think makes a Grogu appearance at some point quite likely is the cloning aspect, you know? What's our introduction to Grogu at the beginning of The Mandalorian? The Empire wants those strands. And so if the Omega cloning connection brings Grogu... I mean, let's let's remember what the closing scene of season one is, right? It's Nalsei arriving at a cloning facility. Like, this is going to be a big part of the story. And of course, it it has to be for for so many different reasons. So I I would imagine that that could be how Grogu came into the mix. But who knows? Yeah, I, I worry sometimes that Dave Filoni has just made it his whole mission to basically make somehow Palpatine returned a more palatable line <laughs> by like laying groundwork across, you know, several different series for the cloning effort, which I don't know that I need that much detail. Like we we get that that Palpy's, you know, doing his dark side cloning stuff, but we've seen just so many hints of that, you know, and like just little like glimpses of possible Snokes and just all kinds of hints that this is all leading to that. So yes, that's going to be a big part of this in some way. I wonder whether we'll get more insight into Mandalore either this season, you know, just to sort of help bridge the gap to Mando, right? Because, I mean, a lot changed between Mandor when we last saw it, like in the Clone Wars and and the Mandalore that, that Din and Grogu are going to be seeing soon in season three of that show. So that might help kind of explain how we got from point A to point B, what it's like at this point. You know, we've been talking about Wolf, right? And how we know that uh, Rex and, and Gregor, they end up in Rebels. Wolf does too. We don't know exactly how he gets there. So for Clone Wars and Rebels fans, they're still kind of wondering whether he'll show up at some point. And we had Gregor in season one, so it would that would right. follow logically. Yeah. yeah. And, you know, I guess there's always a chance of some kind of Andor crossover, you know, like, does the Bad Batch run into Luthen here at some point? Or it's unlikely, I think. And I don't know that the timelines would have worked out with the writing of, of Andor and Bad Batch season two and everything. But there are a lot of characters there who, you know, we could cross paths with. We know they're floating around the timeline at some point. So it's possible. The Mandalore canon in the Clone Wars and Rebels is among my favorite stuff ever, period, full stop. So I would I would welcome more of it here. Um, okay. 
very quickly, episode title corner. If you don't want to hear anything about the episode titles for the rest of the season, hit fast forward for like 30 to 60 seconds. This will be this will be quick. Ben, anything that stands out to you when you're scanning the episode names for the rest of the way that makes you particularly excited? Well, episode three, the solitary clone, right? Yes. Gotta be, gotta be our guy crosshair. They can't keep you waiting longer than this. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) So you would think. Could it be, could it be Boba though? Could be possible. Yeah, maybe. (laughs) I think the two possibilities are Crosshair and Boba. Like, which clones are really established characters for us at this point who are not with other people they would consider like brother clones? Yeah, right. And if they want to. Boba's out there fucking up left and right as a young bounty hunter. So (laughs) I don't know. But (laughs) up the ante after a, you know, not super sensational headline generating premiere. That would be one way to do it. I would expect this to be Crosshair, though. I thought it was genuinely strange that he wasn't in the the first two episodes. And like, we have to, we can't wait too long to, to see what emotional state he's in. And then episode seven is called The Clone Conspiracy. So this is uh, the one that was like glaring siren yeah. emoji territory for me here. Yeah. Right. So this could be, of course, related to the cloning program we were just talking about. That's possible. It could be, you know, I wonder at, at some point in this season or eventually whether we get some kind of concerted clone uprising, you know, whether this becomes the, the Bad Batch's mission is to liberate the remaining regs or to to motivate them, to inspire them to rise up because we've seen hints of that. As you noted, with Hauser in season one, even with Wilco in in the premiere here, sort of, you know, refusing an order, refusing to lie, although not revolting or rebelling against the Empire necessarily. But as it becomes clearer and clearer that the clones are being phased out and that they're not in the future, and maybe as it becomes clearer to some of them that the Empire is not doing good deeds left and right, you know, to what extent they can even see that clearly with their chips, I don't know, but... Is there some kind of conspiracy when it comes to, you know, a mass deactivation of the chips or just somehow getting the other clones on their side, getting them, inspiring them to rise up or or revolt in the way that the Bad Batch have? You know, because once they make the resolution that we're going to fight back, then it's only natural that they would try to rescue slash motivate their brothers who are still in service to the Empire. So that's got to happen at some point. Love this. Love this. If there's a mass inhibitor chip removal, they're going to have to find a way to cover those scars. Or uh, even the (laughs) constantly duped and oblivious empire might catch on. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Um, As a a legend of Korra lover and a Pabu fan, I I was delighted to see Pabu as the name of episode 13. I doubt we're getting (laughs) an Avatar crossover event, but hey, who, who knows? And then you know, the other one that I think is worth mentioning here is that the finale is called Plan 99, which I think also supports what you're saying about the clone conspiracy and maybe that reading, Ben, if there is this larger mission afoot, perhaps it comes to fruition with Execute Plan 99. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that would track. Look at you. You solved, <laughs> solved it. it. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> Who needs to see the screeners? We can just oh. imagine what will happen. I, I just look forward to the pleasure of watching the show every week. It's a it's a lovely a lovely rhythm and yeah, ritual, and I'm you know, I'm excited to spend the next couple yeah, months doing it. It's partly that I just like having the regular cadence of new stuff every week, and partly because you know, look, these screeners were not 
burning a hole in my eyeballs the way that if we had Mando screeners, which, you know, won't happen, but if we had a... <laughs> Imagine. Yeah. If we had a, a buzzier show, then it might be hard for, for me to sit on that and parcel it out week by week. But I think Disney is also aware of uh, what they can withhold and what they can give us in advance. So we've been good. We've been disciplined. Good potters follow mm-hmm. orders. <laughs> Any favorite Easter eggs? We always in a Star Wars pod have a, a little Easter egg chat. Any any favorites from the premiere for you? Yeah, I mean, we, we talked about the Dooku connections and the Sereno connections and the Night Sisters, etc. I, I guess you pointed out in our outline the uh, Indiana Jones Omega, let it go, let the treasure go, save yourselves, save all of us. That was a, a nice little nod. Seems intentional. Big indie year ahead of us. I mean, it has to be, right? Yeah. Yes, absolutely. And <laughs> I think uh, Wrecker, you know, basically becoming a tank, just tearing a tank <laughs> apart, just using it as a handheld weapon. I like this for him. So it's always nice to repurpose some <laughs> some separatist armory. Uh, great stuff. I uh, I think that the the return to Castle Sereno and, and thinking back to the Night Sisters and the throne room segments there. Dooku's throne, always a, a, a thrill to see. Probably tops for me, though. I always love a helmet sighting and being in Sid's parlor. It's a it's an Easter egg haven now <laughs> and always. So especially now that we're mere weeks away from Mandalorian season three, seeing the Mandalorian helmet in Sid's office was a yes. yet again a treat. Mm-hmm. Secret Force user, do you have a nomination from this episode? <sighs> I mean, I guess Omega is the the one that other people have pointed out, with but it. I'm I'm not necessarily. I don't I don't know that I see that happening. But I mean, I guess we didn't get that many new characters. I guess I guess Romar. <laughs> secret, yeah, that's my secret pick too. Scissor. Yeah. <laughs> Benjamin. Bad Batch is not the only Star Wars story that we're getting in 2023. It's a big Star Wars year. So let's spend a few minutes here before we wrap today's pod. Looking ahead, I, I was going to say to the TV and movie slate, but there are no movies. <laughs> <laughs> nope. <laughs> so, uh, so let's look ahead to the TV slate. Here is what is currently scheduled on the Star Wars television front for 2023. Obviously, Bad Batch Season 2 already underway. We're getting 16 episodes there. The Mandalorian Season 3, ever heard of it? I'm out of it, lad. Oh, yeah. March 1st. Star Wars Visions Season 2, Spring. Young Jedi Avengers. Adventures. I said Avengers. I mean, maybe one day we'll <laughs> yeah. get Young Jedi Avengers. Don't kids. rule it out. There probably the won't be Plus that much era. vengeance. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Young Jedi Adventures, uh, likely spring as well. Uh, my heart is starting to race just as I, I get to say these words. Yes. Ahsoka season one. Oh <laughs> we don't have a confirmed date. We know it is 2023. Assuming fall, more precise date awaits us, but it's happening this year. I'm overwhelmed. (laughs) And then Skeleton Crew is also supposed to be a 2023 release. So six shows, that is not only a big Star Wars TV year, three of those are animated shows, three of those are live action. That's a very big year for 
the Filoni verse, for the Favs verse, for the Filoni Favs verse, for the Mandalorian timeline. Not every single one of those shows, of course, is is a part of that, but a lot of Filoni Favs verse, Mando timeline action coming. And I think that means a big year for cross canon connections and characters from one of those shows showing up in another. Ahsoka, of course, entered the live action inside of The Mandalorian. Etc. We know that Skeleton Crew is set in the Mando timeline. So I'm curious of those confirmed TV releases, what are you most excited for and why? You don't have to limit yourself to one. You can, <laughs> I you won't. can pick a couple. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, you said it's a big year for Star Wars. So was last year. Maybe so is every year at this point. That's clearly the plan is for every year to be a big Star Wars year and to not have big breaks between Star Wars releases. No pity on the podcasters and the recappers. <laughs> I'm taking a bit of a break shortly so I can just recharge for Mando and for everything else that comes after that. So I think I'm almost having to recalibrate what I'm excited for and get into a post-Andor mindset. Because as you said, so much of this is going to be about those cross-canon connections and crossovers, which is a very different thing to anticipate and savor than Andor was. That was just diametrically opposite. You know, a great Star Wars thing made by someone who doesn't really love Star Wars or didn't. Whereas now we're moving into all of these properties made by people who extremely obsessively love Star Wars and are eager to show it and put that on screen. And they can both be great. They're both wonderful ways to make Star Wars stuff. So I'm most excited for, for Mando, I think, just because Look, it's a known quantity. We know that it's great, or it has been to this point, and it's been a while. I know we had the the interlude in Book of Boba, the takeover, but it's been a while <laughs> since uh, Mando proper. So I'm yeah. pretty excited for that. Has and been. as you said, with Ahsoka and with Skeleton Crew taking place in that same timeline, we're really starting to get the promise of the extended Star Wars TV universe that revolves around Mando, which we saw in Book of Boba, of course. But if we have three series in this year that are all set in that part of the timeline and have characters crossing over and some common DNA, that could be exciting. You know, if the plans that have been reported before to, to build up to some kind of crossover, consequential, climactic event, if that's still in the works, then maybe we'll get some insight into that. And I think it's also going to be a really interesting year and, and test case because they're trying to port the Filoniverse over into live action, live which action. is a really, yep. it's bold, right? And, you know, I don't know that there's a perfect precedent for that to have a, an established animated universe and then to- And to, a vast one. Right. And to transfer it over into what most people probably still think of or a lot of people used to think of as as primarily a live action fictional world. I mean, this is going to be a, a huge test of the tolerance of the Chris Ryan Star Wars fan. You know, like we, we said with love, we love CR. We're CR heads here. But, you know, is that kind of fan who hasn't done the deep dive into the Filoniverse just going to give Ahsoka a pass? Is Ahsoka going to be able to efficiently seamlessly set the stage for people who weren't on board for that entire run? Or is it not interested in doing that? Is it saying, hey, you've got to invest the time. you got to go back. You've got to dive into the back catalog here. And I hope that it does inspire some people to do that. And I'm sure that the crossovers we've already seen in Mando have inspired people to do that. So we've 
they've you know seeded the ground here. We've seen Ahsoka, of course, already, but now we're going to Ahsoka and Sabine and Ezra and Thrawn and Chopper Hera. and Hera Chopper, and just yeah. on and on. I mean, uh, this is I'm huge. So <laughs> it's really, really exciting to yeah. us and to many others and like maybe impenetrable to other people who are like, you know, some people got on board with Andor and like, this is great. I don't need to know anything. Right. This is the opposite. You know, yeah. we're going to yeah. have to give people a, a syllabus, some stuff to study. And I think that would be rewarding, but not everyone is going to have the, the time or, or the inclination to make that investment. So how do they do that? I think in a way that does not really raise the barrier, because I think for some people, even season two of Mando was at times sort of, you know, I've lost my bearings here. Who is this? Who's this Thrawn? Who's Ahsoka? I feel like I'm missing out on a conversation that's been happening without me for years, right? And that feeling of, of this is more meaningful to some people than it is to me. I wouldn't want that to exclude people, but I, I think it's really fascinating to see if this experiment pays off and, you know, I care more about the quality of the show than the size of the audience. But obviously, it, it has a bearing on future projects and what gets renewed. And so I'm I'm curious to see, you know, does Ahsoka have the sort of audience, not necessarily that Mando has, but at least that, that Obi-Wan had or that Book of Boba had, you know, can it cultivate that kind of following? I sure hope so. So really excited for that. And, you know, Skeleton Crew, we just know so little about that it's intriguing, too. It just, yeah. it sounds like Stranger a different... Stranger things in space. Right. Let's do uh, it. it. Sounds like a good pitch. And, <laughs> I you agree. Know, <laughs> Young Jedi Adventures, which like normally would be the thing I'm probably least excited about because it's, you know, catered to a younger crowd. But yeah. I'm interested because... High yeah. Republic era. Yeah. Right. That's the thing. I mean, A, I have a 15-month-old daughter, so this might be a good way to introduce her to Star Aww. Wars soon. Yeah. I mean... I've devoted thought to okay, how do I how do I broach this? What's the first Star Wars I show and what would be age appropriate? How do I introduce it? So this is sort of the first Star Wars that's like explicitly <laughs> tailored to the preschool crowd, right? So it's so coming sweet. along. Yeah, it's coming along at the perfect time. You know, if you're someone who has younglings, like this could be this could be the gateway drug, <laughs> but in a good way. And as you it. said, also significant in that it marks the first series that's set during the High Republic era. So yeah. we know that the Acolyte is also going to be set somewhere right. in that timeline. Right. And we should say on the Acolyte front, like, that's being made. So it's not listed right now as a 2023 show, but it can't be too far behind. I have to assume that's going to be like a spring 2024 show. But... It, you know, for various reasons, taking the time to to do that and spacing out these releases. But like, it's not totally impossible that the Acolyte and or and or season two could come sooner than we're thinking. But we're assuming both of those will be 2024. Yeah, there, there are only so many weeks of the year. But I, I, I'm excited, you know, if we can't move forward beyond the sequel trilogy timeline, which I, I hope we will at some point, but we're just so tethered. All of these stories are so tied tightly to the prequel timeline, the original trilogy timeline, or, you know, the years between that even just to go back some number of centuries to the High Republic era, which is sort of in the second of its three phases now with books and comic books and, and other supporting properties, at least a little variety in the timeline and just where the universe stands. So that'll be a bigger 
deal for the acolyte, I'm sure, but but this is sort of the first taste. And and I hope that we do get some news about just pushing forward in the timeline because I just wrote for The Ringer recently about how last year was the year of prequels and prequels have been good lately. And I say that as someone who historically has been skeptical. I'm, I'm a prequel skeptic, but but they've really paid off lately. And I'd still like to move on, you know, go beyond just kind of remove the the taste of the sequel trilogy in some respects, but also just see what's going on in the galaxy at that point. So I, I would hope that we get an announcement. Maybe that's where the movies push forward. And as you said, just no movies on schedule, but we got to get some movie news at some point this year, right? Like maybe the Taika movie. Have to. If, yeah. It's got to, we got to get some details. It's been years at this point. Yeah. I would so, expect some, some Taika updates and... and- Lindelof updates very soon. I, I, I can't wait. <laughs> so many nebulous, you know, we know who's writing or who's producing and we know nothing else, right? And I mean, I still think there's a place for this franchise for movies. I think there's yeah! still a purpose that they can serve, you know, even if we get like yes. movie quality TV in Andor and we get just an enormous number of hours of TV, there's still something to be said for for movies. And it's been such a movie-centric franchise, historically speaking, that I'd like to see that still play a part. And just, you know, other stuff just beyond the the TV shows and and maybe movies at some point. I have to have to mention Jedi Survivor. That's right. Our our guy, Cal. Yeah. Cal Kestis, five years older than he was when we first met him. And almost four years on from the first game. So they've taken their time and and that was a great game. You know, Jedi Fallen Order was was really good. It was a great start to the franchise, but it had some rough edges and some things that I'd like to see refined. And, and they've taken their time developing this. And I'm really excited. March 17th. So just right on the heels of Mando, right in the thick of, you know, Mando premiere, Bad Batch finale, Jedi Survivor is going to drop. That is going to be a hectic Star Wars time. And there aren't really a lot of other Star Wars game releases coming short term, but this year is the end of the Electronic Arts exclusivity deal. So EA has had a long-term exclusivity deal with Disney, with Lucasfilm and LucasArts. And so that is expiring this year. And so we're finally starting to see other people start to make Star Wars games. So those will start flooding in in the years to come. And, and there have been some great ones during the EA period, but it hasn't been prolific, really. So I'm kind of looking forward to that being opened up. And finally, I'll just shout out a comic Hidden Empire, which is uh, running right now. And this is the conclusion of writer Charles Soule's uh, basically two-year-long trilogy of miniseries that started with War of the Bounty Hunters and then continued with Crimson Rain and now is concluding with Hidden Empire. And this is sort of telling the story of our girl Kira, right? right. So <laughs> unless and until we get Solo 2, Hashtag. Hashtag make Solo 2 happen. <laughs> we still want it, but at least we we get some updates on what Kira's doing. And there's just a nice like old school EU feel to yeah. all of these comics. I, I've really enjoyed them. So there are a few more issues of Hidden Empire coming out over the next couple months. So those Very are the cool big out. things. Yeah. I love it. That's a great one. I'm excited to read those as well. Ben, you, you know, I actually played Jedi Fallen Order. I'm yeah. hyped for the new game. I, BD1 just a... Uh, Cherished figure in my life as a Star Wars fan. Um, really excited about both of those. Great call outs. On the on the TV front, you summed it up well. I mean, I I'll say I'm really excited for 
season two of Visions. I thought the first season of Visions was really energizing and creatively extraordinary. And I can't wait to see what new art styles and slivers of the galaxy are explored in the new vision shorts. So I'm really hyped for that. Skeleton crew, for all the reasons you mentioned, I'm, I'm anticipating highly Mm -hmm. (laughs) not to put too fine of a point on it, but like in any year, almost regardless of any other thing that, that could come out with, you know, a couple exceptions, a new throne show, but very few exceptions. The Mandalorian season three and Ahsoka would be either of those would be number one on my list by like a mile in any year (laughs) across like my life as a fan. (laughs) So I, I will not pick between them. I am so excited for both of them for all the reasons you mentioned. I, I just can't wait for Mando season three. Like I really cannot wait. It's, Watching The Mandalorian is one of my favorite things, period. Just one of my favorite things to do. I can't wait to be back with my beloved Grogu. It seems like it's going to be a very Bo-centric season. I'm really eager to spend more time with Bo. I love Mandalore and The Mandalore canon and Filoni's particular interest in The Mandalore canon, Fav's interest, and obviously direct role in much of The Mandalore canon over the various shows over the years. So getting to go back to Mandalore and spend more time there. I just think this is going to be a a real treat. Darksaber, one of my favorite fictional blades. (laughs) And you know, I love a, I love a magical weapon. So I, uh, I I look forward to diving back into the Darksaber lore. And, you know, I'm not sure if I've mentioned before, but I love Grogu. I'll just say it one more time. I just can't wait. I just can't wait for Mando season three. (laughs) I would be, shocked if this wasn't an extraordinary and super fun season of TV. And, you know, Ahsoka... Ahsoka is one of my favorite characters in Star Wars. Mm-hmm. In stories. So, a live-action Ahsoka show would be, like, one of the thrills of my life as a fan. <laughs> kind of no matter what. <laughs> the fact that this is live-action Rebels 2.0 that we are getting the ghost crew back together that, and again, we, we actually know like quite little about the plot, but based on casting news and who is in it and where we are in the timeline, we can, you know, we can deduce that like we're, 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 we're picking up and the, the promise of the rebels epilogue and, you know, even like seeing, I remember being at star Wars celebration with the gang and like getting to see it. It was a very short glimpse of initial footage and like seeing the mural. And you just instantly, like, the flood of emotion of looking at the mural with Sabine and Ahsoka at the end of Rebels and then porting that visual over to live action. Like, I had a chill <laughs> my entire body. I was, like, quivering. <laughs> like, I can't believe this is happening. The hunt for Ezra. Thrawn in live action. I mean, when Ahsoka was introduced to live action in Mando season two, and we got to hear Ahsoka say, where is Grand Admiral Thrawn? I can think of very few things that sent a jolt of lightning through me like that did. (laughs) And like for that to be the promise of this new show, I, I couldn't be more excited. So I think what you said is really, really true and really 
really smart. Like I also hope that there's not too high of a barrier to entry for people who don't have that history with the characters. I, I feel confident that this will be something that works for all fans of Star Wars, for anyone who's interested in, in riding along for this journey. But I also really hope, like you said, that people are interested in learning more and that it opens up this wider world and this larger story for a lot of people because it is such a just a, a special slice of the story. It really is. And I can't wait to spend more time in it. I just really can't wait. And hopefully we'll get some more space whales if, if Avatar uh, didn't, didn't quench your appetite. I know. From the Tolkoons back to my beloved Purgles. You know my <laughs> my years-long hobby horse about non-human characters in Star Wars and in sci-fi just in general. So this is bold. This is boundary-breaking. Just basing a series around Ahsoka and Thrawn and Hera. That's another thing that, you know, people have said that maybe that makes it difficult for viewers to identify with the character if they aren't human. I think that is small-minded. I think you must free your mind and, and take a step into a larger world of species. And I hope that that happens because if the series is successful and it is centered on non-human characters, I feel like that really opens things up in, in a way that Andor did for storytelling that this could do for characters and, and for who can actually front a Star Wars series and what sort of stories get told. So I'm really excited just on that level also. Ah, uh, me too. What a year. What a year awaits. Mm -hmm. Anything else, Ben, before we wrap? I don't think so. I think we've covered right. it. It's going to be Boy. big. Can't wait to talk to you about all of it. I know. So excited. <laughs> <laughs> all right, friends. Wrecker woke the pod, but it is still time to wrap today's episode. Thank you to the captains of today's Clone Force House of R, Carlos Chiraboga, for producing this episode. Arjuna Ramgopal for his additional production work on this episode, and Jomia Deneron for his work on the social media for this episode. Remember to send us your questions, your emails, your thoughts, your Apple insights at hobbitsadragons at gmail.com. We will be back on the House of R next Friday for our 2023 hype draft. Until Ooh. then, the fourth sun is setting. It's time for plan double zero. Radio silence.